that's that's a very sociologically uh, oriented explanation, um, and you know it it may it may be true. Uh, of course, in social psychology, we're more interested in the um, uh, individuals' thinking and the individuals' uh, behavior rather than um, necessarily thinking about power relationships, unless we think about those power relationships in terms of how they affect us as individuals. And so one of the things that we do in social psychology is we often draw from theories that come from political science or theories that come from sociology and use them to develop testable hypotheses from a social psychological viewpoint to see if we can demonstrate scientifically that those processes actually work in individuals. Yeah, yeah. Power is uh, a fascinating, uh, power differentials are a fascinating um, influence in social psychology um, and something that's really understudied. We don't have a lot of people that are doing research on power. Um, for whatever reason. Other uh, questions? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Remy. Okay, uh, can I read it? Yeah. So survival of the, is aggression useful? Survival of the fittest. This is on page 260. Uh, okay, aggression in humans can be reduced, but should it be? Some investigators have suggested that aggression might be useful and perhaps even necessary. Conrad Lorenz, remember Lorenz we talked about last time, the idea that uh, you know, he's coming from this very biological uh, evolutionary perspective. Uh, has argued that aggression is an essential, quote, essential part of the life-preserving organization of instincts. I almost thought that said insects. Uh, basing his argument on non-humans, he sees aggression as being of prime evolutionary importance, allowing the young animals to have the strongest and smartest mothers and fathers and enabling the group to be led by the best possible leaders. Um, do you see any contradiction there? Why not? Because the, you're promoting the strongest of the clan to continue to grow. Right. And, you, and the weakest will. They'll get weeded out. So the younger animals are benefiting from the um, uh, reproductive fitness tests that the animals have survived to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think smartest uh, may be a bit of a misused word there. Uh, I think probably the a better word for that would be most adaptable. Because part of adaptation is intelligence. Uh, 
Right. No? Yes? You have to have intelligence in order to develop adaptive responses to your environment, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. And remember from 201, from intro psych, the idea, don't think of this as, you know, this kind of intelligence, right? Think of it as intelligence that works in the real world, right? Okay, because there are multiple intelligences. Street smarts, right? Okay, maybe that's where it's getting confused. Other uh, questions? Good, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, okay, so, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Good question. So, uh, so some of the research has shown that uh, girls tend to engage in less violent aggression, but their aggression tends to be, as uh, your book calls it, relational aggression. Um, and why is that? Um, you know, I don't think that from social psychology we have a good explanation for why that is. Uh, but you, could you propose some possible hypotheses about why? Could you? You want to try? Anybody want to try? Yeah? I think that would be maybe more of a learned thing. Just okay. The aggression, aggression in girls, maybe um, one type of aggression in girls may be more accepted than boys, and one type of aggression in boys be maybe more accepted than is in girls. Okay. So uh, learning and uh, social... Uh, pressure. What else? So, um, and would you? Pro how, what would you propose to explain that difference, though? Uh, that's a nominal fallacy. Okay. So, so a biological explanation would uh, propose uh, perhaps hormonal differences. And um, and so you might propose, for example, that testosterone is more correlated with physical aggression and estrogen may be more correlated with relational aggression. So how would you test that hypothesis? Okay, so you might uh, do an experiment with children. Why children versus adults? Because they haven't been socialized as much. Um, okay. Well, I mean, they're too like small to understand like the social pressures as much, and it's more instinctual. Okay, so you might want to test people at various ages: young children, adolescents, or young adults older adults and see the effect of age and use age as sort of an analog for social influence perhaps. Um, however, if you're going to use children and study this stuff, it's a little bit risky because hormonal changes are going to change, you know, hormones are going to change dramatically in adolescence. 
Um, so, uh, you know, you can't really compare children and adolescents in this context. What other? So, yeah, yeah. They take on, for example, uh, children take on gender roles by about three or four. How can they guarantee that they've never seen again? Because, I mean, if they're a parent that stays home with their child, they, and the child is home with them all the time. They so they don't go to school? Yeah. And they don't socialize with other, they don't play with other children? They don't play with other children? <laughs> you can't control, you can't put them in a cage. Uh, I, I won't say that boys and girls won't uh, differentiate in terms of the kinds of toys that they play with and how they use those toys, but I, I would argue that those differences are probably less biological and perhaps more social. You know, there's both influences, but um, what we need to do in social psychology is try to determine the degree with which uh, these social influences affect our behavior as opposed to, for example, um, uh, biological influences or genetic influences, right? So when we start thinking about these differences, think about how you would propose an experiment to test those differences, right? Yeah, Mark? Aggression is somewhat higher for both boys and girls who uh, grow up with one parent, yeah. So, um, so there are many, many subtle uh, cultural and social influences that affect the choices we make, even as children. Um, so getting back to the question of how are you going to test these differences, um, how would you test the relative difference of uh, estrogen on relational violence? and uh, testosterone on uh, physical violence. Yeah. 
Okay, so you could do a correlational study. So, um, you know, divide uh, men and women into uh, men and women who engage in more relational violence, men and women who engage in more uh, physical violence, and then correlate their, uh, their testosterone and estrogen levels. Yeah. Okay. Um, any better way? Any, how about an experimental way to do it? Can you experimentally influence these things? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can experimentally uh, change testosterone and estrogen levels. I don't know if you would get ethical clearance for it. Um, it's a little. It's you know, playing with people's hormone levels are pretty. It's a pretty risky thing. However, you could perhaps experimentally take you know, uh, a, sample, a sample from the population and um, give them the opportunity to, you know, create some aggressive desire, some aggressive drive, and give them the opportunity to engage in relational violence and the opportunity to engage in aggressive violence and then see what the relationships are between the... Uh, estrogen and testosterone levels of individuals in those groups, you know. Um, that's a more controlled experimental test, but of course, uh, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate would be to uh, manipulate the estrogen and testosterone levels in order to know if there's a biological relationship between estrogen and relational violence. My suspicion is that it's a social influence that women are socialized to be less physically violent and socialized uh, by, uh, by families, by culture, by media, that, um, that relational violence is more acceptable for women. Um, here's, here's an example of how even uh, something as you know, subtle as uh, emotion is affected by socialization. So, what, uh, what are generally, what are the legitimate emotional experiences of men? Those emotional experiences that we generally tend to feel more comfortable with men expressing um, or, or um, that we tend to find more acceptable for men? Anger. Anger. Any others? Anger, humor, particularly maybe sarcastic or biting humor, um, rage, um, being boisterous. Okay, what are the um, what are the emotional experiences that we generally in this culture tend to uh, think are legitimate for women to express? We would feel uh, we feel more comfortable if they express those emotions or we uh, maybe are more accepting of those kinds of emotions, generally. What's that? Tears. Tears, sadness, depression, right? So there's a social expectation, I think, in this culture that women will turn their aggression inward and men will turn it outward. Um, and, and, and those emotional expressions as a function are probably uh, correlated. Uh, first, uh, Megan, and then Shailen. Yeah. Just thinking of hormones, it would be really interesting to look at um, transgender individuals 
Mm -hmm. Sure. Good. Yeah, so expectations, but if there's a biological difference, you should be able to measure that pre-impose. So, uh, so we might look at transgendered individuals before they start using the hormone therapy, and see if, and see if they tend to exhibit more relational or more physical violence, um, and then afterwards. Yeah, good idea. Yep, Shailen. Right. I don't know. Is so in most kids like this talking about relational aggression and this one's talking about a boy saying these things. He's a weirdo, he shouldn't be like that. Yeah, that's just an example they're using. So I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just one example, right? They're not they're not making the blanket generalization that boys do it more. Right? No. Okay. Yeah, it's just they happen to choose boys as an example. Um, yeah, that's what I would guess. Yeah. Anything else before we start talking about learning yet, Emerson? Good luck. <laughs> you are fighting against some hard forces. So if you, you know, if your intention is to, uh, is to help your child feel more comfortable with being uh, more androgynous or even more feminine, um, I think you did a great job. Because here's the deal. As a parent, all you can do is give children opportunities. And what they do with those opportunities is up to them, ultimately, right? And their choices are going to be influenced partly by you, and parents have a fair amount of influence on children's choices, but they're also influenced by what they see on TV, what they see their friends doing, what they see their friends' parents doing, what they see people on the street doing, right? There's so many influences that, um, you know, 
we would like to think that we raise our children, but the children are raised by culture and society. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I will say, too, that there may be, you know, there may be some biological underpinnings for some of these choices. I don't know. I just, you know, I don't, well, I don't think that we have enough controlled data. We can't randomly select children at birth and randomly assign them to, you know, growing up in a cage with certain toys only and other toys only or a choice of toys, right? Um, and con we can't control their environment enough to really know um, what the what the strength. Hold on a second. What the strength of these influences are. Mark, first. Did you have a question? Okay. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, Megan. Did you have something? Yeah. Jumpers have trucks and jumpers have dolls and things on them. You can't avoid it. You would have to be in the woods with nothing but these and not have your kids be exposed to it. Okay, yeah, and then we'll take a break. Oh, um Rachel no Kristen, I'm sorry. Rachel's over. Um, and uh, and 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 how and how would Freud explain that? Freud would explain it as a phallus. It's a it's a representation of the phallus, and the phallus is used in an aggressive, as to to, to you know to or to act out these aggressive impulses, right? So you can come up with all kinds of explanations, but until you can test them experimentally, you ain't got nothing. <laughs> You don't think so? <laughs> uh, you don't think that they see spears and arrows? You don't think that they see their parents clubbing an animal to kill it? Well, yeah, you got to kill it before you can eat it, right? Come on. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's naive to think that, you know, I don't use that in a pejorative sense, but, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, if you try to think that somewhere, somewhere in the world that aggression isn't perpetrated with sticks, you're wrong. <laughs> you'd have, um, if you were going to test that, you'd have to do it in a lab with controlled uh, conditions, and we can't do that uh, ethically with um, humans, right?
you know. How do you know? <laughs> you think. <laughs> Show me the data, <laughs> right? That's what a psychologist will say. You know, you know, it's fine to you know go over in the sociology camp or the uh, you know the philosophy camp and come up with all these great ideas, but until you can actually create a condition that you can control those extraneous variables, it's really difficult to know how much influence they're going to have. You can use some statistical methods to try to control the influence of those extraneous variables, but again, you've got to have a lot of data, and it's very difficult to find populations where you won't have influence from, particularly now, Western media, right? That's becoming ubiquitous around the world. Um, Okay, so I won't say that there aren't, bio again, I'll go back to saying this, I won't say that there aren't biological underpinnings to how, individ how people express aggression. Um, you know, when we look, for example, at uh, chimpanzees, for a long time, we thought that chimpanzees didn't engage in war. And it's becoming much clearer now that they actually do. They engage in group-based violence. Um, and so that gives us some indication. They're probably not picking it up from human culture, right? So that gives us some indication that there may be some underlying biological mechanisms at work here. But again, it's very difficult to know. Um, yeah. Um, well, we uh, didn't quite get to talk about learning yet. Uh, why don't we uh, take a break before we start that? It's about uh, eight minutes of, do you want to come back at about two or three after? And we'll pick up with learning. So, learning. Uh, so we talked last time about the um, bio possible biological bases of aggression. And we find some pretty good evidence that there is some biological basis for uh, aggressive behavior. Uh, but we'll look today at a couple of other hypotheses. One, that uh, learning, that you actually learn aggression, and the second hypothesis about frustration and how frustration uh, affects aggression. So uh, the learning um, hypothesis, one of, the, one of the learning hypotheses has to do basically with operant conditioning and the reinforcement that we receive as a, um, as a product of uh, engaging in aggression. Um, there's some interesting uh, naturalistic data on this. For example, um, teenage hockey players uh, who uh, show the most aggression and the most um, aggressive play tend to be reinforced by their fathers. Um, so if we go to a hockey game, we observe what happens in terms of the father's behavior in, uh, and the reinforcements the fathers provide. 
um, those uh, players who show the most aggression tend to be more uh, reinforced by, uh, by the hockey fathers. Um, in addition, um, media publicity uh, can actually be a reinforcement for aggression, particularly um, aggression that's, that's uh, maybe socially based or, um, uh, or less interpersonal aggression, but more uh, large-scale aggression. Um, here's an interesting piece of data. Uh, oh, you all don't remember this, probably. I'm too young. Um, you remember uh, streaking? Um, so there was a huge uh, period. There was a period of time when it seemed like every uh, sports program you watched, somebody would get out on the field with no clothes on and run across the field. And um, this continued for quite a while, basically until the um, TV stations, the news media, decided they weren't going to cover it anymore, and all of a sudden it peters out. Right. So these are ways that our um, that our behaviors are reinforced, not only by you know direct reinforcements, you know the fathers cheering for the uh, aggressive hockey players, but maybe a more distant force like publicity. And of course, um, terrorists rely on publicity to actually uh, act out their aggression. Without the publicity, and without the wide scale knowledge in a population that you know, somebody knocked down a building, um, they don't achieve their goals. Um, and so it's sort of unfortunate that we have to let people know that there are, you know, there is a danger from terrorism, but that in itself actually helps to accomplish uh, part of the goals of terrorists um, in order to motivate that fear-related behavior in the population. So, um, in addition to, uh, any questions on operant conditioning? You remember operant conditioning? I hope so. Sure, yep, yep. It's uh, not only encouraged, but um, reinforced. Uh, and, and for the most part, probably, without media publicity, there would be much uh, less terrorism. Uh, although that remains to be tested, obviously. Um, I mean, you can't terrorize people if they don't know to be terrorized, right? I feel like that's kind of a double-edged sword with school shootings. Too. Right, so exactly. Yeah, well, you can't obviously explain that from... Uh, rein they aren't directly being reinforced because they're dead, right? Yeah, I mean, but, but they, but well, when we talk about social learning, mm -hmm. the idea that um, they see other people get publicity as a result, yeah. The people yeah. way after them, that yeah. a lot of them are saying, "Why?" Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Oh, we already talked about this. Um, the other uh, approach for the learning 
explanation for aggression is the um, social uh, learning, particularly obs observational learning, and particularly social learning. And so the idea with observational learning is that we learn basically by watching other people do things. Um, and we learn what kinds of behaviors to engage in. Oops. Um, so, uh, uh, so this is so th this is somewhat supported even by neuroscience evidence. Um, there's a particular part of your brain that has um, a, a cluster of cells which are called mirror neurons, and this cluster of mirror neurons um, becomes active when we watch other uh, individuals engage in a behavior, or even when we hear a behavior that we've seen or heard before. And when we imagine that, be when we imagine ourselves be engaging in that behavior, these neurons get activated. So um, there's some pretty good uh, biological level evidence that um, observational learning has a strong basis. Um, and the main argument in terms of aggression in observational learning is uh, Bandura's theory of social learning. Um, basically, what uh, Bandura will say is that aggression is um, acquired. It's an acquired behavior that we acquire from observing other people engaging in aggression. Now, here's the problem. Up until Bandura came up with the social learning theory and this explanation for acquired aggression, uh, the, one of the main uh, ideas about reducing aggressive impulses was the catharsis hypothesis that Freud proposed. Um, so Freud proposes that if we watch other people engaging in aggression or act out aggression, that that releases this, it's what, what they call the hydraulic theory, the idea that we have, wa it's like water pumping into your body all the time. And until you have some way to release it, it just gets more and the more and more pressure, right? You can't keep feeding water into a lake without having it overflow. And so the idea with the catharsis hypothesis was we have these uh, aggressive, unconscious aggressive impulses as part of our id, and they just build up and build up and build up until we can let them out. And so, um, so that really flies in the face of social learning theory, doesn't it? Which is it? Is it that by acting out aggression, you vent it and you're less aggressive later? Or by watching other people that you vent your aggressive impulses and you're less aggressive later? Or is it that you're more aggressive later uh, after watching out or, or after um, acting out aggression? And uh, as your textbook um, uh, proposes, it's the catharsis hypothesis has very little empirical support for it. For the most part, the support is actually in favor of social learning theory. Um, so here's what happens. When we observe aggressive behavior, we think one of the processes that happens is that our inhibitions, our inhibitions toward acting out aggression become lowered. 
right? So you see other people doing things, you may be more likely to do the things you would be inhibited from doing previously. Um, and what's interesting about this uh, data and this research is that you don't just um, act out the aggression that you've seen, because human beings are amazingly creative individuals. We make up new ways to be aggressive. and in a lot of ways more um, disturbing and maybe cruel ways. So, um, so it's, uh, it's a real problem, as you can imagine. Um, so let me show you a little bit of a video clip. If you've been in my uh, intro class, you've seen this clip already probably. Uh, and this is a clip of Albert Bandura talking about social learning theory uh, and uh, some clips from the Bobo the Doll experiments. Um, and it, you, read, you read about the Bobo the Doll experiments in the book, right? Okay. So you know a little bit about the background of those. Let me see if I've got audio. Um, okay. Alrighty. Let's see how this goes. So this is the uh, Bobo the Doll, the inflatable clown doll that when you knock it over, it has a weight in it, so it pops back up. Uh, and you'll see, he'll, there are two example, two example children here, a boy and a girl. And um, you'll see how they respond to watching an aggressive model engage in uh, aggression toward the doll. Stanford University. Ooh. A segment you were about to see is taken from an early experiment on learning of, of aggressive styles of uh, behavior uh, through modeling. Uh, children uh, watched a, uh, a film adults uh, perform novel aggressive acts toward a uh, inflated doll, and the physical aggression was uh, accompanied by uh, novel uh, hostile we later measured how much of this uh, modeled aggression that the children had learned uh, just by uh, watching. Now, the measurement uh, of uh, learning of aggression uh, uses uh, simulated targets rather than uh, live ones. Uh, for example, uh, to test how well bombardiers have uh, learned uh, uh, bombing strategies, uh, you would use uh, simulated targets rather than require them to uh, bomb San Francisco or uh, New York. The uh, model pummeled the doll with a mallet, flung it in the air, kicked it repeatedly.
aggression would drain the viewer's aggressive drive. As you can see, exposure to aggressive modeling is hardly cathartic. Exposure to aggressive modeling increased attraction to guns, even though it was never modeled. Guns had less appeal to children who had no exposure to the aggressive modeling. The children also picked up the novel hostile language. material and children could choose to play aggressively or non-aggressively. Children devised new ways of hitting the doll. Now the object of interest was, was the novel aggressive acts, not punching the doll. The children in the control group who had no exposure to the aggressive bodily never exhibited the novel forms of aggression. And here's a creative embellishment. A doll becomes a weapon of assault. That gives you a little bit of a visual idea of what those experiments were like. It's, it's interesting to read about them, but it's a lot more powerful sometimes to actually see them uh, in action. Any comments about that uh, clip? Yeah. Right. And they would often face the doll toward the face of the doll toward them, uh, as a model of aggression. Yeah, yeah. Any other uh, comments on that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Good. So when you act out and play with the toys, uh, it, what, what's the principle that's involved when it makes it easier to do later on? Priming. So it's really kind of, it's kind of a priming, uh, but more specifically, it what we generally tend to see in the research is that um, people become less inhibited using these um, these these toys in uh, in other kinds of ways than just playing. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of um, it. It's related to. Uh, it's probably related to. Uh, uh, it's probably related to behavioral disinhibition. It's also related to. I can't remember now. Um, not called numbing. I can't remember the terms. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's interesting about this research was not necessarily even just that the uh, children who observed the aggressive behavior uh, engaged in aggressive behavior, but the children who observed the non-aggressive behavior with the doll didn't engage in those um, unique, novel ways of, um, of aggressing toward the doll. Um, and as they said, there were a variety of different kinds of toys in the room that they could use to play with the doll. And the ones who chose the guns were the ones who saw the aggressive modeling previously. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if they did or not. Um, uh, one one would propose that you know that as responsible experimenters they would, but um, through random assignment to conditions you should randomly distribute any variances in home condition across the two conditions. Um, although you can get statistical anomalies in distribution as a result of even random assignment and selection. So, yeah. Okay, so um, now where do we uh, where do we get observational learning from? Well, um, certainly one major source of observational learning is family, and what we'll generally tend to find is that aggression uh, is correlated with uh, higher levels of aggression is correlated with uh, children who have punitive parents children whose parents have a very uh, authoritarian parenting style uh, and tend to use a lot of aggression uh, in punishment and violence in punishment. Um, in addition, we see also a higher rate of aggression in children who have um, an absentee parent or absentee parents. Um, so whether it's the mother or the father who's not present uh, it really doesn't matter, just the fact that there is a parent absent. And this holds uh, across variables that you might think are associated with absentee parents. Uh, for example, some racial groups, income levels, uh, education levels, and uh, location, whether it's urban or rural. So, um, so, so families and parents do have a strong influence on um, children learning aggressive responses and then coming up with new aggressive responses beyond what they've learned in the family, right? 
Um, and then, of course, uh, culture uh, is going to have an effect. And here's the types of cultures that we tend to see uh, higher rates of aggression in. Um, Non-democratic cultures tend to have higher rates of aggression and violence. Uh, cultures which experience economic underdevelopment, so um, for whatever reason, they're very poor uh, cultures. Uh, economic inequality, and we're going to see this come up over and over and over again. Um, not necessarily the um, the uh, you know the fact that you're poor, but the fact that there is um, a uh, division of uh, wealth in the culture. And then cultures that have um, a strong tradition of warrior preparation and uh, a history of engaging in wars. Um, those cultures also tend to show uh, higher rates of aggression. Now, um, there's an interesting study done by, uh, a series of studies done by uh, Dove Cohen and, uh, uh, who are the, Cohen and uh, Nisbet, uh, Dick Nisbet. And um, Cohen and Nisbet did uh, a series of studies and they published it and they, they coined the idea of cultures of honor. The idea that certain cultures are much more reactive to insults and um, transgressions against individuals. And so here's what they did. They uh, ran this experiment in a Midwestern university. I can't remember where they were, Illinois or uh, somewhere in the Midwest, I think. And uh, so they ran this experiment where they had a hallway that people would walk down. And the hallway wasn't quite wide enough for two people to pass by each other without bumping into each other. And so a confederate of the experimenters, you know, somebody who was part of the experiment, uh, walked one way down the hallway and they sent the subject down the other way in the hallway, right? So I'm walking along and um, this person's coming toward me. And what they were gonna use as a measure of aggression was the distance uh, between the two individuals when the subject yielded because the confederate was told don't yield. You know, you just walk down the hallway and don't make eye contact, don't, you know, just, and don't move. So, so the subject has no choice but to yield or run into the, into the confederate, right? So, um, so, so the confederate's walking down the hallway, subject's coming toward him, and they're gonna measure the distance. And um, to their surprise, what they found was that um, a fair number of individuals didn't yield, first of all, and actually ran into the Confederate. And uh, secondly, uh, they found that a fair number of the subjects, after they walked by the Confederate, would turn around and you know insult them, verbally insult them, you guys, right? So, um, so there's so there was this interesting um, aggressive. Uh, behavior that they sort of weren't expecting. And uh, so they ran a series of the experiments. One of the uh, variations, they measured testosterone levels uh, after they got to the end of the hallway. You can use a, a swab uh, uh, in your mouth to measure testosterone level. And uh, they found increased testosterone levels for those who didn't yield uh, and those who, um, uh, who engaged in verbal aggression after the, uh, after the insult. And so, 
So they were trying to figure out what's going on with this stuff, what's going on with this data. And uh, what they found out was those individuals who didn't yield tended to be more likely to come from southern states. They came to school there from a southern state. Now, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the frustration-aggression hypothesis. And one of the ideas with that that we know is correlated with aggression is heat. And so the idea was they came from a warmer climate, so maybe they're um, you know, more likely to engage in aggression. And uh, they, so then they controlled for temperature, the mean temperature for where each subject came from to see if that would explain the variance between the subjects, and that didn't explain it. And so, uh, so then what they finally discovered was that um, the people uh, who didn't yield tended to be from uh, cultures, uh, ethnic uh, background, even back generations, ethnic background of cultures that engaged in a lot of herding and hunting behavior as opposed to agrarian kind of cultures. And what they found was that the original immigrants to um, the southeast, mostly, um, were uh, Scot mostly Scottish and Irish uh, herding uh, people, you know, people who had livestock. And so, um, so the, that original necessity for protecting your flock, protecting your herd against any kind of transgression seems to have carried through in behaviors that are communicated culturally by the families of people who come from these cultures of honor. Um, so, uh, so then they take this uh, data and they start running it in other countries where there are these strong um, herding and uh, uh, cultures and they find the same thing. So there's something about the, the way that um, the culture uh, has to survive that actually influences behavior generations beyond uh, where it was necessary. Because these people, even though they come from those cultures, they may not have been from uh, families that had livestock, for example. Yeah, exactly. So they learn it from the, the family communicates it through the generations, sure. Uh-huh, yep, exactly, yep. So they see other families that come from that background and they exhibit those behaviors, yep. It's how they are because of this, yeah. So when they're when they come to America or people come to America, why would they still hold on to that? I think that society is more valuable than their family members and how often are they running into their family members versus going downtown There's an interaction. It's not all explainable by observing the people in your immediate environment. There's some biology involved, there's uh, family structures and histories involved. Uh, there's traditions that come from those cultures. Yeah, sure. Uh, it depends what part of China, um, but uh, and it you know it really depends on the eth the you can't because it's such a polyglot uh, culture. You can't really say the culture in general, but I wouldn't be surprised with Hong Kong specifically. 
yeah, because it's on the coast, and um, I don't think they don't have a lot of flat plains there, do they? It's a very hilly kind of place, yeah. So uh, again, the primary cultures that that uh, Cohen and Nisbet studied, I think, were uh, Scottish, Irish, uh, New Zealand, places that have a high proportion of herding and uh, uh, hunting. Okay, so uh, beyond learning is the um, frustration explanation for aggression. And the idea with frustration, um, if you had to define frustration, how would you define it? What is frustration? What causes frustration for you? So um, frustration is um, is a product of your goals not being attained. So there's some kind of gap here um, where there's a gap between what we achieve and what our goals are. And the frustration aggression hypothesis proposes the following. First of all, um, we are frustrated because we don't meet a goal that we have. And typically, you know, sometimes it's our own uh, block. We're blocking ourselves, but sometimes other people are blocking us. And so one way to deal with that frustration is to withdraw. You know, just say, oh, well, you know, and you retreat, essentially. The other way uh, with that frustrated goal is through uh, some form of aggression to try to get that goal met. Um, and one way to engage in that aggression is to direct it inward, right? To actually feel aggressive toward yourself. Oh, I'm so stupid, or oh, I, you know, how can I, how can I never meet my goals? An alternative to directing it inward is to direct it out there. And there's really two things that uh, we'll do if we um, direct our uh, aggression outward, we can do it directly um, toward the person who's frustrating our goal, our goal behavior, or we can displace it. Do you remember what displacement means? Yeah, so the Freudian notion of uh, displacement as a, uh, as a uh, defense mechanism is the idea that um, these, uh, we direct, we redirect these aggressive impulses towards someone else. Um, and so, um, uh, so it's, so we might kick the dog instead of, you know, sock, you know, punching your mother in the face, right? Okay. So this is the basic way that um, the frustration aggression hypothesis proposes that we engage in outward aggression toward people. Now, um, this is not, you know, this explains m a good proportion of the kinds of aggression that we behave in, that we, are, that we engage in. Um, but Berkowitz uh, revised the frustration aggression hypothesis. And here's the deal. It's not necessarily just that we are objectively being preventing our goals, but rather that we have a perception 
that other people, if they had only acted differently, things would have come out okay. And that pisses us off, right? So remember, you know, this idea with social cognition is not necessarily the objective reality, but your subjective reality. So when you think, damn it, that person could have yielded in the hallway, right? And, um, but this isn't enough. This we get angry from, okay? But Berkowitz says, that's only part of the picture. What we need then are aggressive cues in the environment that are actually going to kick off outward aggression, okay? Um, and so uh, an aggressive cue might be, for example, um, you know, someone else behaving aggressively, right? Whether it's verbally or physically, you know, that allows us, that gives us some permission, kicks off that aggressive impulse, right? So it ties into social uh, so observational learning um, in that way. Okay, so beyond frustration, um, uh, or beyond this idea that uh, we have these frustrated goals, uh, and in line with those ideas, really, is the idea that we are frustrated by a certain kind of unusual, we'll call that deprivation. And here's the idea with deprivation. Uh, there's something that we call absolute deprivation. And absolute deprivation is when um, you don't have the things you need to survive, okay? So people living in Appalachia uh, who are very poor, don't have running water, don't have you know, sewer systems, don't have public education, that's absolute deprivation. And what's interesting is there's no connection between absolute deprivation higher levels of absolute deprivation and higher levels of aggression, okay? So absolute deprivation isn't correlated with increased aggression. But here's what is correlated with aggression, is relative deprivation. So inequalities that exist in a society and they oftentimes make us aware that there's some kind of a gap between our um, expectations for what we should have, could have, and what we actually have or could have, okay? And it's, it's this, um, this gap that uh, is really much, has a much higher relationship with um, aggression, particularly when we look at some uh, sociological data here, um, there is a, a positive correlation between higher levels of economic inequality and higher levels of homicide. And this is uh, data for medium-sized cities in the United States. Okay? So it's not necessarily that in poor places there's a lot of homicide, but in places where there's a gap between the haves and the have-nots. Right. Okay. 
And uh, this is some other interesting data on uh, police use of deadly force. Um, the income disparity between whites and blacks, this is again, I think, in um, data from medium-sized cities in the United States. The income disparity between whites and blacks uh, is, a, is one of the best predictors we have for whether the police in that city um, are more likely to use deadly force in resolving a uh, police crisis. Okay, doesn't have to do with training, doesn't have to do with, you know, um, it may have to do with training, it may have to do with the way that um, the in income inequality plays itself out in the rest of the, in the rest of the city's uh, systems. But, um, it do, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, how poor the place is, but rather how much disparity there is between blacks and whites specifically. And that may be because, um, because whites are typically going to have um, higher incomes, blacks are going to have lower incomes, and um, the whites have the stuff, the, um, the powers of the, you know, the city police are going to be more sensitive to, you know, patrolling those areas of the people that have the stuff. And so it creates this, this whole cultural um, divide between whites and blacks and who has things, who doesn't, who to be suspicious of and who not to be. So it creates this um, real intense cultural problem. Uh, questions, ideas on deprivation? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. This is um, this is going to become a bigger problem. We are currently experiencing one of the uh, widest disparities in income in this country. Um, there are a lot fewer people in control of a lot more wealth in this country than there have been uh, historically, and so those of us in the bottom. We don't generally tend to think of ourselves in the bottom, but um, but that gap is growing wider and wider and wider, and this stuff is going to get worse. Yeah. I if if there were, I think uh, when I read the when I read this study, uh, they aggregated the data, and I don't remember if there were specific geographic areas where it's worse than others. I think. There might be a correlation between places that have higher income disparity uh, and geography, but I don't know if there are any. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so uh, so what leads to aggression? What are the reliable antecedents? Or to say, um, what kinds of factors do we have to look out for? that might be more likely to predict aggression, what would they be? Um, for one thing, um, we'll call this aversive stimuli. So stimuli in the environment, things that we're exposed to that irritate us, basically. 
Okay. And we run this we, we run these experiments for both animals and humans. And when we expose them to greater levels of these aversive stimuli, then we will see uh, greater levels of aggression. So one of those aversive stimulus stimuli is pain. Um, so if we, uh, for example, put uh, rats in a um, chamber with an electrified grid on the bottom, um, you would predict from operant conditioning that if you put rats in the chamber and when they uh, approached each other um, in a non-aggressive way, you turned off the um, electrical stimulation, right, negative reinforcement, it would try to, it would get them closer to each other in a non-aggressive way. If they came together in an aggressive way, you turn um, the, the stimulus, it would get them to, uh, to not approach each other. Well, it doesn't turn out to be the case. You turn the, you know, this electric shock in the bottom of the cage, and they go nuts, and they attack each other. And operant conditioning doesn't have any effect. So it's a real bizarre kind of thing. It's this real intense physiological response that um, prompts them to engage in these intense uh, behaviors. That's physical pain, but we also saw uh, from the frustration data that that's a source of pain too, psychological pain. Um, in the environment or another aversive stimulus and uh, one of those irritants that we know is highly related with heat, uh, with uh, aggression, is what we'll call transient heat. So not, um, not necessarily long-term, long-lasting heat, but rather, uh, again, it's that disparity. If you're used to living in a place that's not hot and suddenly you have a heat wave, aggression goes up. If you're used to being in a room that's at 72 degrees, and I turn the heat up to 87, 89 degrees, I'll get more aggressive behavior, okay? Um, third uh, antecedent that we look at, a uh, second antecedent we look at is uh, arousal. So physiologically aroused an individual is, the more likely they're gonna engage in in, in uh, aggression. Again, not surprising considering how these aversions affect us. And one of those arousal stimuli is crowding. Um, all things being equal, if you have a uh, you're more likely to get aggressive behavior. But usually, again, you need that cue for aggression. You need to be able to lower the disinhibition and allow people to engage in aggression. Okay, so you know, you're in a uh, go to a heavy metal rock concert that uh, has a, a stage show that involves some aggressive behavior, and it's packed, and the air conditioning doesn't work. That's trouble, right? Those are creating the conditions where aggression is um, more likely to emerge. It doesn't mean it will, but it's more likely. In addition, as we showed with the um, data from Nisbet and Cohen, um, insults and attacks are another uh, form, uh, source of arousal that can increase aggression. And as I said, most of the time, in or even if you have aversive stimuli or if you have arousal, 
you're going to need an aggressive cue in order to kick off the aggression. And so typically, um, just the sight of guns, just an image of a gun or, um, uh, or the presence of a gun in the environment will kick off those uh, aggressive uh, behaviors. A second major form of aggression cues is uh, uh, violent pornography. Violent pornography doesn't have the same kinds of aggression cue uh, abilities that violent pornography does. So pornography that involves um, actual physical violence or uh, psychological violence toward the, uh, uh, toward the people, the subject of the pornography. And then uh, the third cue for aggression that we see is media. And um, media influences, so the degree to which um, we see aggression portrayed in the media and the degree to which we, um, that's going to feed into arousal because we become more fearful when we think that we may be the target of aggression. Okay. And so the media focus on um, relatively rare aggressive violent behavior doesn't help things at all. Yeah. Okay, um, we're running out of time here. Um, so I will see you, um, good gracious. It's going to be a while, is it? No, Tuesday. Yeah, so we will have on Thursday, you know that. Okay, yep. Yeah, yeah, and I'll get a study guide ready to be downloaded. In fact, I think it's already up there. I mean, no, maybe I didn't put it up there yet. Yep. It'll be up tonight, yeah. Oh, yep. 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 Most likely. Don't hold me to it. It's not there tonight. Check tomorrow. <laughs>